Welcome to Seven Mile Ministry. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, church. God is amazing. Romans 8, verse 19 says, For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. You and I are children of the Most High. Listen, the most powerful thing in the world is not a nuclear bomb. It's God's children, full of Him, changing the world around them. It's the most powerful substance in the face of the planet. Would we just participate this morning with creation itself, crying out to a Savior, to its Creator, saying, God, you're amazing, you're worthy. Think about it. Every cell in your body is crying out to its maker. Your skin, your bone, your hair follicles, if you have a whole lot, mine's getting less and less every day. But every bit of creation is crying out, and God just asks, would you allow your heart to cry out as well? Would you give permission to your tongue to cry out to your maker, to your God, the lover of your soul? Because he's worthy. He's worthy, church. It's what the birds sing about. It's what the trees do every single day. They worship the one who created them. And church, we want to do the same. Because he's worthy. He's worthy. Let's pray. Father, we love you intensely because you first loved us intensely. Father, we're excited about church. We're excited about your word. We're excited about you. We're passionately in love with you, God. There's nothing else that we could do in our lives but be passionately in love with you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Well, hey, say hello to two or three people around you, your church family. And let's get ready for the Word of God this morning. Amen. Praise the Lord. If you haven't been with us the past several weeks, perhaps over a month, I guess, um, we've gone through the life of David. We talked a lot about David. Last week, the Holy Spirit led us a different direction and we talked about being a follower, follower of Christ. And uh, this week we're going to jump back in where we left off with David. And David is, uh, he's my favorite person in the Bible, next to Jesus, obviously. But I like David. Greatest king Israel ever had. In my opinion, probably the greatest man in the Bible. I like him. Did he make a mistake? Sure. Find somebody in the Bible other than Jesus that didn't make a mistake. But David uh, was an awesome, awesome man, a warrior, a great king. And uh, we look at his life, and man, how, mo- how many things you can learn. There's so many chapters and verses written about David. And um, so we're going we're gonna to talk about David again today. But David, a boy, Samuel comes out, and he's anointed to be the king just as a boy. He's just a boy. And he's the last on the list, but he was the first on God's list. In other words, he was the last on man's list. They didn't even account him. Didn't even, he's just out there keeping the sheep, but that's the one God chose. Because he's not looking at your size or your age 
or any outward appearance, but He's looking on your heart. So He's anointed just as a kid. The Spirit of the Lord's on Him, gives Him the strength to overcome a lion and a bear to protect His sheep. That's a type and shadow of Christ who came, and He is an overcomer as well, and He has protected His sheep, which is you and me, you and I. Amen. And then David goes and fights a battle against a giant, Goliath. Everybody knows the story. Even atheists know that story, David and Goliath. And he goes, and basically um, the whole nation is, are fixing to become slaves because that was the deal. If you win, we'll be your slaves. And if I win, we'll be, uh, y'all be our slaves. That was the deal Goliath was making them. And nobody wanted to, to face him. Saul didn't want to face him, who was the king. And David goes out and defeats Goliath, just as a teenage boy, out fighting a seasoned warrior. But the Spirit of the Lord was with him, the strength. It wasn't by his, his power, it was by the Spirit of the Lord that gave him the strength to go out and defeat the giant, the same a strength that was upon David is the same strength that's upon you to defeat your, your giant. But David did that. And uh, basically for the entire nation. So the entire nation was fleed for, freed from becoming slave. Once again, another type and shadow of what Christ did for us. Came and overcome, defeated Satan. So that you and I could be free. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, then David becomes Saul's right-hand man. He goes, Saul keeps him, takes him and keeps him. Next thing you know, it's the, the Word of God tells us that they're singing songs about David. They go out to battle and they come in and the women are singing songs. Saul killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. He's a hero. He is a hero so much so that Saul gets jealous and is trying to kill him and we've already gone through all that. But I mean, he's a pretty big deal. He's a real big deal. And he honors the Lord and serves the Lord and he has opportunities to kill Saul. He doesn't take matters on into his own hands. And um, Saul dies. David is, is now the king. I mean, there's a city named after him, the city of David, the star of David. In the New Testament, a blind man comes up to Jesus and he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, was David Jesus' father? For those who, who may not know, no. But it was the lineage. It was the bloodline. Jesus came from that blood. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. No, I'm telling you, David's a big deal. He's a big deal. He's a real big deal. He becomes king, and they're victorious. They are very, very victorious. And they go and get the Ark of the Covenant had been captured. Nobody else had gone to get it. Saul hadn't gone to get it. There's not even mention of going to get it. And David says, we're going to go get it. Not only are we going to go get it, we're going to bring it back and we're going to build a house for it. That's important. David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back and build a house for what? For God. In the city of David. So anyway, I love all the stories about David except for one. And you read this one, and it's a heartbreaker. You know, how we could relate is some of you maybe, I've never experienced this, but maybe some of you have attended a church in your past. Um, and maybe, man, you love the pastor. He was awesome. He was great. Man, he, he was so good to you, so good to the people. But then you found out he fell into some type of a sin, and it just totally broke your heart. 
or maybe it was your dad, or maybe it was your mom, or maybe it was a youth pastor. That somebody, people here have experienced some level what I'm talking about. And what I'm talking about is David's sin with Bathsheba. And you look at all of David's success, and man, it's just awesome. And then all of a sudden you read this story, and it's just like, oh man. And it's kind of a heartbreaker, isn't it? But it just goes to show that we need a Savior. No matter how great and how powerful and how wonderful and how awesome you are and how successful, you need a Savior. We need a Savior. David needed a Savior. Every man needs a Savior. That's why God sent Jesus, because we need Him. Amen? So, in Second Samuel, the 11th chapter, now, there's so much to read, and I've tried to condense it down. I did condense it down. And I'm going to probably quote some and paraphrase some things, and y'all have to go back and read it for yourselves. But in 2 Samuel, starting in the 11th chapter, and we'll just kind of run through some of this. It says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, and that's, that's important if you're a note taker, in the spring when the kings go out to battle, that's because they didn't battle in the wintertime. That's, I find that interesting. Hey guys, uh, it's kind of cold. Let's take a break. We'll uh, pick back up in, uh, let's get going in March. I mean, too bad we can't do that at work, right? Because it's kind of cold out there. And this, towards the end of this week, and this coming next weekend, it's going to be mighty chilly. It'd be nice if you could just take off when it gets cold. But that's what they did. They didn't fight in the winter, but they did fight in the spring and the summer and the fall. But it says the spring of the year at the time when the kings got to battle because the kings always went out to battle with their men. The kings are the one leading their men. They didn't send them. They went with them. They went out to battle with them. But it says the time of the year when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and Basin's uh, Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. He didn't go. He stayed. He sent his men out to battle, but he didn't go with them. He stayed back at the house. He had never done this before. Read Scripture. He's leading the battle. He's slinging some swords. He's taking care of some business. He's showing his men how to do it. Think about Christ. Christ didn't come and say, hey guys, do it this way. Uh, with his words. He came and said, do it this way with his feet. In other words, he showed us how to do it. He came to this world, lived this world as a human being to show you and I how to do it. That's how we are followers of Christ. He had to give us something to follow. And you say, yeah, it just can't be done. Well, he did it. And he says, what I did, you can do even greater. Amen. But David didn't go. He stayed back. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers, took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from the impurity, and she returned to her house. Now, David didn't go to war. 
I'm going to pull it back up. He didn't go to war. It's the spring of the year and he stays back at war. Now, I, to think, I just thought about this all week. David didn't go to war. He stayed back. But he had always been to war. He had always done these things. And you reflect back on his life from a boy all the way through how he's always been uh, um, concerned about the things of God and that was his main focus. His attention was on uh, the things of God and what God wants me to do and what God wants me to accomplish. And he's always in the battle. He's always been in the battle. That's been his main focus. has been the things of God and what God wants to do in my life and how He wants to use me. Do you see this? But then all of a sudden, now he arrives at this place. He's the king. And he kind of gets complacent, I guess you would say. And he says, I'm just going to stay. I'm going to set this one out. I'm just going to send my people. Well, last night, the men's group, we were talking about some things. And one of the men said, well, here's what I do. I get up extra early in the morning so I can uh, have time to put on some praise and worship music, spend some time worshiping the Lord, and spend some time reading the Word of God and seeking Him first. And I was thinking about in my life how uh, I've gone through different seasons in my life. Uh, you know, going all the way back to a young man where I would get up early and, and I would set my alarm and I would read the Word and I would pray and I would be an intentional because I needed Him. I needed Him. I was in a tight spot and I needed Him. So I would intentionally seek Him because I need you. But then, things were kind of... The dust would settle. The smoke would clear. Things would be going pretty good. And then all of a sudden... I just really didn't need him, I thought. You know what I'm saying? So I didn't go to battle. I just kind of stayed home. It's easy to do as a Christian. It's easy, easy, easy to do. It's not easy for me to do it because I have to get into the Word and I have to pray and I have to read and I have to study and I have to stay in it because I'm the pastor. I have to teach y'all every Sunday and I can't skip it. I can't miss it. You guys keep me on track. Now, if I wasn't a pastor, would I do it? I'm going to be honest with you, probably not. I'd probably miss some days. I may miss some entire weeks. Who knows, I might miss a month. I hope I wouldn't. But I'm just saying, I might. How do I know? Because I did it before. Before I had the responsibility. Sometimes I would just not feel like it, and I just wouldn't do it, and I could. I got, I'm okay, I'm here at the palace, I got the money. My relationship with my wife's good, me and the kids are good, the cars are all running fine, the house is fine, work's going good, things are flowing, things are going. And it's not like I intentionally say, well, I don't need God, you just don't seek Him. He's just not the center of your focus and your attention. And I think maybe David got to that place where he's complacent and now he's not going to battle. It's a battle that he was called to. God made him the king. The kings went to war. The kings went to battle. They led their people. It's the battle that God called him to. And just because he didn't go to the battle doesn't mean the battle was take, not taking place. Because it was still going on. But what happened was he stayed home and now he's in a battle. He is fighting the battle he was never called to fight. Because he wasn't supposed to be there. And how does this relate to you and I? Well, I'm talking about the spiritual battle. We don't go out and fight with fists and we're not slinging swords and we don't have slingshots and that thing, but there's a spiritual battle and just because you don't engage in it doesn't mean it's not taking place. It's happening each and every day. 
And you do, need to, you do need to make time for the Lord. And you need to stay in the Word. And you need to be in prayer. You need to be engaged in battle each and every day. And Jesus does need to be the main focus and the center, the hub of your life. And not to get complacent. Get complacent. Get relaxed. Well, nobody's ever broken my house in the past 20 years, so I just don't think I'll set the alarm today because nobody's ever broke in before, and then next thing you know, somebody broke in. Why'd they break in? You didn't set the alarm because you got complacent. And as Christians, we also make compromises. It's just a little. It's just a little. It's just a little. And a little leads to a whole lot. Amen. So he should have been at battle, but he stays home. And it says he arose from his bed, so that kind of tells me it was probably late in the afternoon. Or maybe he's taking the middle of the day nap. I'm not really sure, but I know he went on the rooftop, and you don't go on the rooftop in the middle of the day when the sun's beaming down on you. You go into the roof in the evening, and there's a breeze, and it's a little cooler, and he looks down there, and he sees a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, but whole, so now he's in another battle, the one I just mentioned. That wasn't the battle he was called to. Now he's fighting another battle. He sees something with his eye, the lust of the eye. He sees something, and he wants it. He would have never been on that roof if he had been where he's supposed to have been. If he had been where God told him to be, where he was supposed to be, out with his men, leading. But now, he's on his roof and he sees something and it catches his attention. And that's what Satan does. He just waves a little something in front of you to catch your attention. Mind, will, and emotions. He wants to get, get that thing in front of your eye so it'll get in your mind. Now you're thinking about it, and 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 you're at work, and some lady or some man's kind to you, or they're attractive or good-looking, they're in front of your eye. Next thing you know, you're thinking about it, you're thinking about it, you're thinking about it, you're eating lunch, you're thinking about it, it's on your mind, you're thinking about it, now you're doing it. But you see where it started? That's how Satan works. She was beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. What you inquiring about her for? You a married man and she's a married woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba? She's the wife of Uriah? So she was in the, the river bathing because it was uh, the, the bath was following the time of the month for a woman. So she was washing and cleansing herself, purifying herself. That's what that means. And David sent for her. See where it says, for she was cleansed from her impurity. So David sends for her and he brings her to his house. Do you realize this is the most powerful man in the entire universe? Not just in the country, nation, but he's, he's the baddest dude that there is. What he says goes. Chop their head off, they get their head chopped off. It don't matter. He, he's the man. Do you think she had a choice? There's people that preach sermons about uh, like she consented and she was out there flaunting herself in front of David trying to draw his attention and make it out to be some kind of love story. Bull, what, this ain't a, it wasn't America. They didn't treat women back then like they do here. 
It's not like that at all. I heard a missionary preaching one time and they were in Uganda and the Uganda women said Bathsheba's our favorite woman in the Bible, even over Mary. Why? Because we can relate to her. Why? Because that's how we get treated. We don't have a choice. They just tell us who we're going to sleep with, who we're going to marry, what we're going to do. Bathsheba came. It's just not a love story. He saw something that he wanted and he brought it back to his house and he used it like a tool and then he said, go put it back on the shelf when I'm done with it. That's what David did. And that's how she was treated. And... Um, so don't be mistaken if you've heard any things like that this is some kind of love story. It's not a love story. David has already, at this point in his life, he's got six wives already and ten concubines. Six wives and ten concubines. Sixteen women at his disposal. I, I can't even imagine that, having two or three Four, five, six. He's got six wives, ten concubines. You want to get right down? You know what a concubine is? Pretty much a sex slave. And while you're here, wash my clothes. You just scrub the floors too. And fix me a sandwich. It wasn't a good thing. I don't have this on the screen here, but I want to read it to you. He says, when you, when I'm, we're getting ready to establish this nation here, and I'm going to jump in right here in about the middle of Deuteronomy, 17th chapter, and um, let's go to the about 14th verse. It says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself. That don't mean a thing to you and me. But that, how about cars? You don't need 17 cars. I mean, in other words, God wants you to have plenty. He wants you to live a good life, but not so you can just store up a bunch of riches on here on earth, but to help others. He blesses you to bless others through you. But he said, don't store up a bunch of wealth and a bunch of horses. And he says, nor cause the people to go to Egypt and multiply horses for you. For the Lord has said... Uh, to you, you shall not return that way again. Now here's the part I'm getting to. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. Let's just... <laughs> wow. That was weird. <laughs> Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. And that song started playing as soon as I said that, didn't it? Yeah, it's true. Lest his heart turn away, uh, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. I'll stop right there. Basically, 
you know what? Christ needs to be the focus. The things of God needs to be the focus. That needs to be the hub of your life, not riches and not cars and not horses and not silver and gold and not a bunch of wives. It says the king shouldn't have a bunch of wives. It says there in Scripture, that is the law. King should not have a bunch of wives. You shouldn't have a bunch of wives. And here's David. He's already got six wives and ten concubines, and that's not enough. That's because the things of this world will never satisfy you. If you're a man, you can have six wives, ten concubines, a hundred of them. That'll never satisfy you. If you're a woman, it can be a bunch of purses, shoes, or a closet full of clothes, or it can be a bunch of men, or whatever it is. It's never going to satisfy you. There's only one thing, and that's Jesus. And that's what he's saying. Even here in the Old Testament, that's not what you need. Those things are going to distract you. And you see, it came to pass because it did distract David. He was distracted by a woman. And as a man, I can, I can relate to that. We were talking about some of those things last night at the men's meeting. You know? Lust. You have to make a choice. I'm going to look at one woman. and That's going to be the one I'm married to. That's it. Amen. I mean, you could say, yep. I can respect that they're good looking, but this one over here is mine. This is my wife. I'm not looking that way. I'm not looking off the roof. I might have looked off the roof and noticed, whoa, they're bathing. I'm going to go on back in my chambers here. But he didn't. It was that, what's that song say about this? the second glance or the second look or something like that? They get there's a Christian song on the radio that says it's, the, it's not the first look, but it's the second one. They get you. And he got David. God had always been his focus. And when I say the focus, the hub, as you look in his life, the things of God had always been the hub. So you take, what's a hub? You take a bicycle or a motorcycle, and it's got a hub in the center, very center. Then it's got spokes, and, or like a wagon wheel, a hub, and wooden spindles, wooden spokes go into a wheel, and everything's rolling, but it's all attached to, and it's all hinged off the hub. All the spokes are attached to the hub. You follow me? That's why Jesus Christ, the things of God, seek first His kingdom, His righteousness. Those things have got to be in the center of the hub of your life because that's what everything's rolling, attached to, and hinged off of. Are you following me? But all of a sudden now, what I want and what I desire has become my hub. That's what became David's hub. Now all of a sudden it's about... I mean, he even says it. In the Bible, he didn't want to do anything that displeases God. I mean, he wouldn't touch Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. He wouldn't touch him. But now, all of a sudden, he's looking at a woman. That's why it's just like, it's just kind of unbelievable when you read the story. It's like, wow, you've made it this far through life, and then all of a sudden, you, you fall just because of one woman? And it's not like you've never had a woman. He's got 16 of them. And it wasn't just 16 of the best thing he could round up. Let me tell you, it was the absolute best in the nation. He's the king. He just picks them out. That was beautiful. I'll take her. That's the way it was. That's the way it was. Can you imagine being in high school? Back then in those days, and you got your eye on a girl. The girl's got her eye on you. Y'all kind of like each other. Maybe you even love each other. And all of a sudden, you graduate, and the king says, I'll take her. You're going to be my wife. You're going to be my concubine. 
That'd be rough. That'd be rough. But that's how it was. I'm just making the point here that it's never going to satisfy you. Snorting a little cocaine, it won't satisfy you because it's going to become more and more and more and more and more and more. Same thing with alcohol, same thing with drugs, same thing with money. Money. If I just get, if I could just make a hundred thousand a year, then yes. And then you make it, and you're like, you know, I think I could probably make a hundred and twenty. I need about a hundred and twenty, and this just keeps on and going until next thing you know, making that money is the main focus of your life. Where's Jesus fit in, man? That's why it's the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money. Money's not evil. Money's good. You can help people with money. But the love of it, the love of the things of this world, and that's where David ends up right here, looking at this woman. So he he uh, says he lays with her and then sends her back to her house. Then he gets word from her. Hey, David, I'm pregnant. So now she's pregnant. Well, it's not her husband's child because her husband's at war. And they didn't go to war for a week. I mean, they're out there for nine months a year. They're gone. So somebody got her pregnant. His messengers who went and got her and brought her to him, they all know. I mean, pieces of David's sitting there thinking in his mind, oh my goodness, what are they going to think? I mean, nobody really knows what happened in there. They probably are thinking what could have happened. But then when they find out she's pregnant, but then her husband was at war, then they're going to reflect back on, oh yeah, David saw her and liked her and brought her to her. And uh, yeah, must, David must be the father. So David's thinking of these things. The first thing he's thinking of is, what are people going to think about me? What are they going to think about me? He didn't fall on his face immediately, repent to God, and say, God, what am I going to do? I have messed up. I have sinned against you. I have broken a commandment. I have broken the law. What am I going to do? They killed people back then for these type of things. They didn't go up there to the $199 divorce thing. They killed you. Killed you. He's the king. Ain't nobody going to kill him. What are they going to think about him? I mean, they had him on a pedestal, but now he's done this. What are they going to think? That's what he's thinking. What are they going to think? So what am I going to do? I've got to cover it up. So what I'll do is, he's got a plan. So he sends a messenger to Joab. Joab's out there at battle where David should have been. He says, send your ride to me. So he sends a ride to him. I'm not sure... uh, I don't have that on there. He sends a ride to me. A ride comes back. And he says, "A ride, hey, how's things going, bud? How's things going? How's Joab? How's the battle going? Give me a report." And you can imagine the ride's thinking, "He brought me all the way back. I just walked 20 miles. Asked me how things were going. Shouldn't I be out there fighting?" But he says, "Well, things are going good, and we're we're prevailing. Things are good." And he said, well, "Okay." He said, "Well, I tell you what. Let me give you some food, and you go down to your house and wash your feet. Wash your feet." That don't mean anything to you and me, but that means go and enjoy yourself. Go to your house, take a shower. Uh, You haven't seen your wife in quite a while. You and her, y'all can have a little romantic dinner, whatever, and uh, chill out, sit on the couch, watch some gun smoke or something, you know. Enjoy yourself. That's what that means. So Uriah took the food and he leaves. You see what David, see what his plan is? 
Now the rise is going to get a word in about 30 days or so. Hey, your wife's pregnant. He's going to say, oh, I'm going to be a daddy. That's what David's plan was. And uh, Uriah went right outside the door and slept on the ground with the servants. He didn't go to his house. And David finds out about it. He says, you didn't go home. You didn't go home. And he asked him, why didn't you go home? And David said, Arai, did you not go down to your house? Did you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Arai said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are encamped in open fields. Shall I then go to the house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I mean, he's a man. He's got some character. He says, I can't go to my house, hang out with my wife, chill out all weekend, and do nothing with my men, my brothers... The whole nation, the men are at battle. They're out there letting, putting their lives on the line, sleeping out in a tent in the middle of a field, and I'm supposed to just chill out and relax. I can't do that. Not going to do that. Where did he learn such a thing? From David. He learned that from David. That's the life that David lived. That's where Uriah had learned it from. That's how his men were. And David says... All right, we'll stay here the rest of the day and um, tomorrow too. So he gets another plan together. He comes in, feeds him up real good, gets him drunk. Thinks surely if he gets drunk, now he's going to go home. Doesn't go home, goes out there, sleeps on the ground again. So then David um, sends a letter with him. This man's carrying a letter that he's going to hand to Joab. When he hands it to Joab, Joab's going to read it and it's going to say, Make sure Uriah dies the day in battle. He's carrying his own death sentence, basically. He puts it in his own hand. And he's carrying it. Uriah carries it. That just goes to show what kind of a man he was, what kind of a respectable, honorable man he was, because he didn't even read the letter. How many of you would have read that thing? I mean, you, you're walking 20 miles. You're going to get curious. I mean, I wonder what kind of letter he sent me with. I mean... You'd have read it. I know, a, I know a guy that was dating a gal here a while back, and he left her at his house just for a minute while he ran up the road, and he come back. Well, that girl went through some of his personal belongings and found out he had a couple million dollars in 401k, and she done found her man now. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to put the hook in this dude. Well, she told one of her friends that told another friend, another friend circled back around to him. You know what he did? Boom, drop kicked her on out the door. Because he said she's just a gold digger. But she went through his stuff. And I know none of you would ever do anything like that. I know my mother would never do that. So he gives this thing to Joab, says, put a row on the front line, put him in the fiercest battle, put him out there, and, and I need him to die today. So Joab puts him out there with all the valiant men. They push their, uh, 
uh, adversaries, the, the men they're about battling, they push them back against the wall. They got too close to the wall, so you know what? Next thing you know, now they're shooting arrows, and Uriah dies. But he's not the only one who died. Several of the other men died as well. So then uh, Joab sends a message back to David saying, don't be upset, don't be mad because all these other men died, your servants died. Just know Uriah's dead. Now, um, I've got that one on there. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. So uh, not only did he die, but lots of other people died as well. Now, if you, you've heard people say, um, I think it's called a harm principle, where I can do what I want as long as it doesn't harm anybody else. Like, what's it matter what I do? Let me tell you, whatever you do it is going to affect someone else. I mean, unless you're on an island by yourself, you've never ever seen another human being, nor will you ever. It might not affect anybody. But anything you do and you think it won't affect anybody, it's going to affect somebody someday. Sometime it will affect somebody. You think people aren't looking at you? People are looking at you. People see things you do. People see you sitting in church on Sunday, cussing on Monday, church on Sunday, getting drunk on Friday, or they see you uh, being a follower of Christ seven days a week, 24 hours a day. What you do does affect people, and David probably doesn't realize when he's looking at that woman, just that one look, that's that one decision, what a great impact it's going to have. Now there's an innocent man who loves his wife dearly and who's an honorable, respectable man who's willing to put his life on the line for his country. He's dead and a lot of other men are dead. What David did has now affected a lot of people because those men had wives and they had children too. So now letters are being written home. Your daddy died, your husband died, your brother died, your son died. You realize how many people were affected by that one sin, that one mistake. Look at Adam's sin. What about our sins? We make compromise and we get complacent and we do things. We think it's just a little this or it's just a little that. David prayed, it's just a one-night stand. It's just a one-time thing. And here he is. Lots of people are dead. It's not a one-night stand. It's not an event. It's not a party. It's not a good time. It's a path. And every path you get on has a destination. Period. Decisions are paths. Decisions are paths. It's called the path principle. Every path has a destination. When you get on that road out there, it's going to lead you somewhere. It's going to lead you somewhere. And sin will lead you to a place that you didn't want to go. It'll keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And that's where David finds himself right here. And... Um, Joab sends a message back and says, Arise dead. And um, how many people were affected here? And David's response to this is, it, it, it's uh, shocking. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another, strengthen your attack against the city and overthrew it. 
encourage him. So David didn't want Joab to be upset or discouraged. He wanted to be encouraged. So he says, the sword devours one just as the other. What? Of course Joab should be upset. He just sent this innocent man out there to die, and a bunch of other people died as a result of it. Now there's a bunch of people back home, kids crying without daddies. It's because Joab sent them out there. It's because David told him to. But David's response is, doesn't seem to be very, he doesn't seem to be too upset about it. He says, well, the sword devours one as another. Yeah, it does. That's why Jesus says, put the sword away. You live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And then when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that he had done displeased God. Well, of course it displeased God. Obviously it displeased God. He's, he's, he's committed adultery now. He's had the woman killed. Now all these other people were killed, of course. But he says, live by the sword, die by the sword. And notice he says, the sword devours one, it devours the other. That's, that's, that's key. Because he doesn't know how true these words are. He doesn't know that that same sword that was used is going to be used on him. Live by the sword, die by the sword. So we go to 2 Samuel, very next verse, 12th, 12th chapter, very next chapter. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and Nathan is a prophet. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one, one little lamb. Just one little lamb. That's all he had. Just one. He bought it. He nourished it. He took care of it. And they grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock, from his own herd to prepare one of the wayfaring man who had become to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You're the man. Thus says the Lord of God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. In other words, this poor man and this rich man, this poor man's got one lamb, this rich man's got a bunch of lambs. Who do you think it is? It's Uriah and David. Uriah's just got one who he loves and cherished. And David's got many. And then, guess what? He takes from the poor man to feed this man. And David is mad, he's furious. And he says, he's going to give him back. He's ready to kill him. He's going to give him back four times. And he says, you're the man. You're the man, David. You took this man's only wife. You've got seven, six at this time, six and ten concubines. And you went and took this wife, took his wife. And it says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Israel, uh, from the hand of Saul. 
And it goes on and it says, I gave you everything that was Saul's and the kingdom and everything, all the servants and everything he's had, I gave it to you. And he says, and if that hadn't have been enough, the word says it, look in your Bible, if that hadn't have been enough, I'd have gave you even more. And I reflect back to Adam and Eve. They had everything they needed. They needed nothing. But it wasn't enough. They had to go and eat from this other tree. David had everything, most powerful man in the world. Reality is he was the most powerful. And it wasn't enough. And it wasn't enough. And it says you broke this command. And because you broke this command, um, well, let's hold off for a moment. That, don't, that, only, that doesn't only remind me of Adam and Eve, but me and you, us. I mean, is it ever enough? Like I talked about a moment ago. Is it ever enough? Are we ever satisfied? It seems like we're always wanting more of something. I've lost weight, but I want to lose more weight. I've built some muscle, but I want to build more muscle. I've got X amount of dollars, but I need some more dollars. I've got this X size house, but I need some more. We've got a certain amount of people in church, but we need more. Or whatever. The list goes on and on. Always... Needing more. Always wanting more. This goes back to what I was saying earlier. There's only one thing that's going to completely satisfy any of those desires, and that's Jesus Christ, a relationship with Him, and an encounter with Him, and all those desires just, they're lifted. They're lifted. And if you're in a place in life where those desires are creeping back in or they've got a hold, on, a hold of you, I can tell you what's going to make them leave. It's a closeness it's a closeness to Him. That's the only thing that's going to make it leave. That's the only thing that's going to make it vanish is a closeness. Because compared to the closeness of God, uh, the presence of God in your life, in your car, in your house, in your marriage, in your business, all everything else just feels seems so minuscule. And like it don't even matter. And it's just hard to put into words. It's something you have to experience. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And some in this room have no clue what I'm talking about because you've never experienced it. But he's no respecter of persons. All you got to do is seek him. All you got to do is seek him. You can just sit in your kitchen by yourself. That's what I did. And I said, I need you. I need you. I'm done with red. I surrender my life to you. Done. I got to have you. And, and some more things along those lines. But all of a sudden, my kitchen filled up with the presence of God. I mean, if anybody had been there, you, you, you're so thick you could cut it with a knife. Just so tangible. Just like the most awesome, I can't even put it into words, describe the feeling of it. Then all of a sudden, money don't matter. The cares of the world, lack of money don't matter. Bad reports don't matter. Nothing matters. But God says to him, he says, um, he tells him, he said, you despise my commandment and you did evil in my sight. And he says, uh, you killed this man. You committed adultery. You killed this man and you took his wife. And as a result of that, um, he says, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. 
and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. In other words, what you did in secret, it's going to happen to you in the open. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Now he says about the, the sword will never leave your house. Did we read that one? That may be in the 10th verse. But we're talking about the sword devours one, it devours the other. I think it's in the 10th verse. It says, the sword is going to devour your house. The, the, the sword will never leave your house, is what the Scripture says. It's never going to leave your house. And um, you read that. Actually, I could have swore I gave you 10 to put in there. It's got to be my wife's fault. got to be. It couldn't be mine. But the 10th verse, I wanted you to say it, but it talks about the sword. It's never going to leave your house. Never going to leave your house. So now these children, the one that's just fixing to be born, are the children that have been born, the one that are going to be born. They haven't done anything. Well, what have they done? Why is the sword going to be on their house? Why is there going to be a curse on their house, their families? Why? Why are these things going to happen? They didn't do anything. They're innocent. They didn't do, I didn't do anything. I was just born. Well, it goes back to the wages of sin or death. It goes back to Adam and Eve. You and I, we didn't do anything. We were just born into the world full of sin. Why? Because sin had entered, entered in through man. It entered in through Adam and Eve. And as a result of their sin, guess what? Death reigned through. Death reigned. So you look at the children being punished and you look at the sword being on his house. What does that mean? Well, go read all of it. You got, he's got several wives and each wife has daughters and has sons. Well, the, 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 the son of this one daughter, he likes the daughter of, a, let's say the son of this daughter. That makes no sense. The son of this wife likes the daughter of another wife. They got the same daddy, different mamas. She's good looking, so he wants her for herself. So he pretends to be sick, gets her to come over. Then guess what? He rapes her. She begs him, please don't do this thing. This thing is displeasing. And you're, surely you're not going to do this. And he rapes her. And then she says, well, make me your wife. And he says, no, you just go back home. Then now all of a sudden he hates her and he don't want anything to do with her. So her brother who has the same mom and the same dad, he doesn't say a word to anybody, but guess what? When he gets a chance, he kills him. And then the same one that killed him, later on, now he decides he wants to be the king. So he rounds up some people, and he's got a following, they like him, he actually starts politicking. He starts politicking. He starts saying, I can do this for you and I can do that for you. If I was a king, I would make these things happen. He starts getting a following. Now he's going to take over David's throne. He's going to kill him. His name's Absalom. Then his hair gets caught in a tree limb and he's hanging there from it. And he ends up dying. And you go and read through and his children, how they died prematurely and they're fighting and back and forth. And you just see how it all goes back to looking off the roof and committing sin is where it started. How many people were affected? How many people were affected by the sin of that one man? The children, it don't seem fair, does it? 
just kind of doesn't seem fair. Well, some of you in this room feel like David because you feel like you've made some mistakes in life and your children are being punished because of it. Your children are struggling because of it. They haven't had the life they should have had because of your sins and your mistakes. Other people feel like you'd have had a better life if your mom and dad hadn't made the sins and mistakes that they made. In other words, you can relate to David one way or the other. Whether you feel like him or you feel like one of your kids, his kids. Maybe you feel like both. So where does that leave us? What does that say for us? Well, here's the thing. We live on this side of the cross. David lived on that side of the cross. He lived on that side of the cross. In the book of Romans, there's so many. But God demonstrates His own love in the 5th chapter, and we'll read the 8th verse. God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us while we were still sinners. And then in the 12th verse, Therefore, just as uh, through one man sinned into the world, death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. In the 17th verse, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Do you see that? That's talking about all of mankind because of the sin of David. I'm talking about, I mean, sin of Adam. I'm talking about David. His family, things happened. There was a curse on them because the law was broken. The commandments were broken. You didn't get a 98 because you just broke one. You broke one, you got a zero. You understand? The law didn't flex. The law didn't bend. It was hard. And um, in the 20th, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But this is a scripture we quote all the time. But where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. So where your sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And it says in the sixth chapter, the first verse, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death? In other words, the old man died and the new man came to life. You're not who you once were. You're a new creation. All the old has passed away. Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism and death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in the renewedness of life. We died with Him and we rose with Him. You're a new creation. You're born again. Amen? Now, for if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we shall no longer be a slave of sin. We are no longer slaves of sin. No longer slaves of sin. We sing a song, I'm no longer a slave to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. Amen? Now I can keep reading. For he who has died has been freed from sin. You've died and you've been freed. You're no longer a slave to sin. What does that mean? You're no longer a slave to sin. Well, even though Nathan said your sin, you're not going to die because of your sin, but the sword is going to be on your family. 
It's going to be on your family for generations to come. It's going to be on your family. Um, Mark, come here and help me. And Fumi, you come up here too, buddy. Or you can just get down there. Or get up here. I don't know where we need to be. Where's that camera pointing? We'll just, we'll just get up here. Y'all get up here. So here's what that means. So let's just say this is a... Uh, here, you're David. You look like how I picture David. I picture him being pretty stout. So you're David. Get up here front and center. So even though David sinned, right? He can't escape it because he's a slave to sin. He's a slave to it. That's what the Word just said. But Jesus came and freed us now. But we were a slave to sin prior to Jesus. Hope I got a key to these. No, I do. I've never used it. I'm just trying it out for the first time. Oh, yeah, it works. Okay. Come here. I'm handcuffing you. But uh, I'm going to handcuff you to your dad because I know you like him. If I can't get you loose, I mean, you know, at least you like him, right? Okay. Don't be trying to get loose. So now here's... That's good. Here's David. And he's handcuffed to his sin, his past, his mistakes, his failures. You think David's probably hurting because he feels like he's let God down and he's sinned and he's failed and all those things? Yeah, sure. But now he's seeing all these things happen to his family. I can tell you that hurts a way whole lot worse. I remember when my boys were laying in the hospital bed and they were uh, two, two and a half pounds and I didn't know how to pray and I said, God, just take me and let them live. Just take me and let them live. Dear Lord Jesus, just take me. You can have me and let them live like he's going to negotiate with me like he would even want me. I mean, what good could I do him in heaven? I mean, I know it's just going to be another angel in the choir, but I can't sing. I'm making jokes. He don't need me up there. He needs me right here. He needs you here. But I was willing to trade my life for theirs because their lives are more important. You don't think David, that his children, watching what's going on, his own children turning against each other, raping their sister, turning against his own daddy? Nothing's going to hurt you more than to, if I, my kids don't fight, but if they were to fight and squabble, you see this in families all the time, and it's got to hurt as a father when your family, your brothers and sisters and all, they don't even come over because they hate each other. I mean, it hurts. It's got to hurt. I know it does. And that's what David's seeing. And no matter where David goes, he can't get away from it. I mean, he's trying to get away from it, but he's chained to it. He can't get away from his past. He can't get away from that sword. He's chained to it. He's a slave to sin. That's because he lived on before the cross. That's why God sent Jesus we need him. You see how great of a man David was, but yet he still fell. He became bound to his past and his mistakes and the failures. There's people in this room, there's people at the sound of my voice that feel just like that. You can't get away from it. You've messed up. You've made mistakes. Your family's a train wreck, whatever it is. And no matter where you go, how hard you try, how much you read, how much you study, how much you pray, there's always a constant reminder and it's just a big old heavy ball. You're chained and shackled. That's what you feel like. But I got good news. In the sixth chapter, 
He says, which I was just reading there, what Jesus has come and no, you're no longer a slave of sin. There, chapter 6, verse 6. We should no longer be slaves of sin. But in the 18th verse, having been set free from sin, you become a slave of righteousness. What does that mean? That means Jesus came on the scene. He walked up in there in the jail. And He turned you loose from that past. You can go. He turned you loose from that past. He turned you loose from all your failures. He turned you loose from all your mistakes. He turned you loose from being a slave of sin. But that's not where He stops. He says, I want to make you a slave to something else. I want to make you a slave to righteousness. That's, these cuts must be for a smaller feller. Or maybe they just like to punish people when they handcuff them. That's probably what it is. Uh, yeah. Where's that key? We need that thing, buddy. Because you ain't going home with me. So, so now Jesus says, you're not a slave to sin anymore. But you're a slave to righteousness. You can't get away from you. I'll never leave you and I'll forsake you. Try to go. Try to get away. See, you can't. You can't get away from me. I'm here, brother. You're a slave to righteousness. You may try to make some mistakes and you may try to get into some things you shouldn't. You may try to go back into your old way of life. But guess what? The Holy Spirit... See, when Jesus comes, you get the whole package. It's the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's with you everywhere you go. You can try to run from Him, but you can't get away from Him. You know why? Because you're a slave to it. That's what the Word of God says. Like your good deeds can't get you free. Well, your bad deeds, your mistakes, and your shortcomings... It don't get you thrown back in prison. You're a slave to righteousness. You're a slave to righteousness. Does that mean you can go out and do anything you want to and that God's okay with it? No, you don't understand grace. What that means is you can go out and do anything you want to because what you want to do is going to change because I'm with you. Now you're living for me. Now you're my slave. You're a slave to a condition called righteousness. See, David did not have that. He needed it. But we got it. Amen. Praise the Lord. You don't have to walk around as a slave to your past. You don't have to walk around as a slave to your daddy's past, your mama's past, your family's past, the curse that's on your family, the generational curse. My great-grandma got pregnant. My grandma got pregnant. My mama got pregnant. I'll probably just get pregnant too. And I'm talking about pregnant like when you're 15 with no husband. That's what I'm talking about. My whole family's been poor. They all died of cancer. Probably I will too. No. You're not under that curse. That's a generational thing that Jesus broke. You're not a slave to the condition of sin. You're a slave to a condition of righteousness. man was talking last night. He said he was living in sin. He said, but there was always this line. He says, it's like when everybody crossed the line, I couldn't cross it. It's like, hold up. Like something was stopping me. And he was talking about it as his parents praying for him. He has more than that. It was this. Praise the Lord. Amen. The problem is we go through life and we don't know this. Nobody's ever told us. All they do is tell you all your sin that you've done and how it's all going to send you to hell. And they haven't... Thanks, Fumi. I like, that worked out better than I thought. I thought for sure I was going to call somebody up here to un uncuff us. 
Well, how'd that happen? Let me hurry. I know we're running out of time. We're running out of time. Here we go. Here's what the prophet Jeremiah is telling us in the 31st chapter. I remember I read this years ago, and it jumped off the page. Boom! Hit me in the head like a sledgehammer, and I was like, yes, that's awesome. You ever read scripture like that? Yeah. It says, uh, 31, chapter 31, 27th verse. Behold, the days are coming. They're not there yet. They're coming. In other words, we go back to where David's living. They're not there yet. Jesus hadn't come yet. There's not a Christ. There's not a Savior. You do good, good things happen. Do bad, bad things happen because you're under the law. You do bad, cursings. Do good, blessings. You understand that's why the law was given to make you realize you need a Savior. I need a Savior. We all need a Savior. King David himself needed a Savior. Apostle Paul needed a Savior. Everybody needs a Savior. Behold, the days are coming. Those days are here now. They're here now. They came with Jesus that I will show you the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man the seed of beasts. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, to afflict, so I will watch over them to build, uh, to plant, says the Lord. Now here's where I'm getting to. Get this. In those days they shall no, uh, say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth set on edge. The children didn't eat any sour grapes. The fathers did. David's children didn't eat any sour grapes. David ate them. And as a result of it, their teeth are set on edge. You know when you eat something sour, your teeth are like set on edge. I mean, seriously, like a lemon. It's like, woo. But their teeth are set on edge. But they didn't eat the grapes. Their daddy did. You and I, we didn't eat them. Adam did. Teeth set on edge. But it says, days are coming. I'm going to establish this new covenant. Again, it's good. Get a hold of it. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity, and every man eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on the edge. And behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Not like the same one, not like the old one that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the hand and led them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm just, I'll just stop there because we could, we could just keep, keep on reading. But I'm going to establish a new covenant. What's the new covenant? The cross. The blood of Jesus. The grace of God. Praise the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel for those days. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall each man teach his neighbor every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. Their sins I will remember no more. See, chained to it, you can't help but remember it because you're chained to it. Everywhere you go, there it is. Your past, your mistakes, your failures. David's chained to it. You and I chained to it. You're chained. You're a slave to sin. You can't get loose. But he says, guess what? This is a new covenant. You're no longer slaves to sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness. I'm going to uncuff you and I'm cuffing you to righteousness. And he says, your sins I'm not going to remember anymore. So if he's not going to remember them anymore, why would you want to remember them anymore? 
God's not going to remember them. Why do you want to remember them? If somebody's constantly putting them in your face, look what you did. Well, God don't remember them. Why do you? Why are you throwing this up in my face? He's not. Satan condemns. God convicts. You know what He convicts you of? Righteousness. He's reminding you, going, hey, 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 hold up. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You're a slave to righteousness. You don't do the things you used to do because you're a slave to righteousness. He's convicting you of your new condition called righteousness. Amen. Now, he says, how the children of Israel, he said, I brought them out and um, how they, he delivered them. Now, I'm going to tie this together and then we're done. The sour, sour wine, the sour grapes, children's teeth are set on edge because the fathers ate the sour grapes or drank the sour wine. Are y'all on page? Y'all on board with me? Y'all, y'all following me? When the children of Israel were brought out of Israel, they took a hyssop branch and they put the blood of the lamb on it and they applied it to the doorpost. And everywhere the blood of the lamb was applied, nobody was harmed, nobody was killed. They left out of Egypt. God brought them out. But that hyssop branch applied the blood of Jesus. Well, He says, here's a new covenant. Here's a new covenant. No longer will your teeth be set on edge. Why? Because in John the 19th chapter, in the 29th verse, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's already been through everything for you and me. He's fulfilled the law. He's hanging there. It says, now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. A vessel full of sour wine was getting, sitting there. And it was put on a sponge. It wasn't just put on any ordinary old stick. It was purposely put on the hyssop and put to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Do you understand that that hyssop was put in the blood? The blood was put on the doorpost and so we could go free. And the same hyssop was put on the curse, the curse of the fathers, the curse, the sin. And it was put up to Jesus' mouth. He took the curse. He took the sin. There was an exchange, blood and freedom versus curse and prison. That's powerful. That ought to excite you. Praise the Lord. Amen. That's all I got. That was, I needed like two hours to preach that because I missed a lot of stuff probably. I'm hot, I'm sweating. I'm feeling pretty good. What I want you to see here is relating yourself to David and relating yourself to his children and thinking you've messed up, made mistakes, or whatever. Your family's messed up, and as a result of it, you're this slave of sin, and you, you can't get away from your past. David couldn't get away from his past. David didn't have Jesus. You and I have Jesus. As great as a man as he was, he still failed. He still made a mistake. No matter how great of a man or woman you are, you're still going to fail. You're still going to make a mistake. You need Jesus. Amen. If you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, he has uncovered. 
unlocked that handcuff and he has locked a new cuff. You are a prisoner of righteousness. Your teeth are not set on edge by the sins of your father. Don't talk about that generational curse crap because Jesus died on the cross for it. You've got to receive it. You can break it. You don't have to walk in the steps of your father or your mother or your granddaddy or your grandma. Do you understand me? Jesus took the curse on the cross. That's powerful. That is powerful. That's exciting. Praise the Lord. David let a lot of people down, but so have I and so have you. And man will always let you down, but Christ will never let you down. He'll never let you down. Amen. All right, I'm going to let you go now. I'm going to let you go after we pray. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We, we're so grateful. So grateful. So grateful that we don't have to go through life dragging a bunch of baggage and being bound. We thank you for the anointing that completely destroys and breaks the yoke of bondage and we're not bound anymore. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for the sin, our sins, and thank you that the, you took the curse upon your body so that we could be the righteousness of God. It's all through your blood, and we thank you for it. So if anybody's here in this house this morning who says, I've never accepted Christ. I've never accepted Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And today's, today's my day. If that's you, or maybe you're listening online and you say, I'm not there to raise my hand or open my eyes or to say the prayer with you, but yes, you can say the prayer. You can say it right there where you're sitting. I'm going to help you out. If you've never accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you just it's real simple. It's real simple. You just speak to Him and you just say these words right here. Just say, Father, thank You for loving me. Thank You so much for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for me. Thank You for loving me. And today... I surrender my life to you and I receive Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior to live in me, to be with me, to lead me, to guide me every step of the way. Amen. Amen. And if you said that prayer, whether you're here or online, you're a new creation. The old's past, the new's come. He just undid the handcuff and He put on a new handcuff. Now you are handcuffed to Jesus. Remember that. When you go to the bar, you're taking Him with you. When you're in adultery, you're taking Him with you. When you're stealing, you're taking Him with you. When you're cussing somebody out, He's right in the car with you. When you're flipping a bird driving down the road, He's sitting in the car with you. You can't get away from Him. He's handcuffed to you. Amen. That should take the fun out of sin right there. Amen. Praise the Lord. Y'all get something out of this today? Amen. Well, good. Good. Well, Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we're leaving out better than we came in, and we give You all the glory for it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen. Y'all don't forget women's group. Tomorrow night, 6.30. Men's group, Wednesday night, 6.30.